Welcome to History Talk, the podcast that brings together a panel of experts to discuss current events in historical perspective. I'm your host, Jessica Blissett. And I'm your other host, Brenna Miller. Around the world, zoos have become a mainstay weekend attraction more popular than even sporting events. Periodically, zoos attract headlines too, such as last month when the Japanese zoo euthanized 57 snow monkeys after DNA tests revealed that they had some genes from a species of monkey considered invasive to Japan. Or in 2016, when Ohio Zoo shot and killed a western lowland gorilla Harambe after a toddler fell into the gorilla's habitat. Today we think of zoos as places for both animal preservation and human entertainment. But how and when did these public institutions come about? And what do they tell us about ourselves, our relationship to other animals, and our broader place in nature? Today, we have a roundtable of historians with us to discuss the history of zoos, humans, and other animals. Via phone, we have Dr. Daniel Vandersummers, a postdoctoral fellow in animal history at McMaster University in Ontario, Canada, specializing in American environmental and cultural history and the history of zoos in the United States. Hi, everybody. And also via phone, we have Dr. Tracy McDonald, an associate professor of Russian and Soviet history, also at McMaster University. Her areas of interest include social and cultural history, microhistory, film, agrarian studies, violence, and animal studies. Hello. Thanks for joining us today. Historically, what has been the purpose of zoos? Dan? Well, when we look at zoo history from the grandest perspective, especially alongside their predecessors, menageries, the history of zoos really began at the beginning of cities. As city-states formed in ancient societies, menageries, fancy word for a collection of wild animals for the purpose of display, these menageries are born alongside and within ancient cities. And the purpose of these menageries at its very origin was to display not only animals, but power and wealth with those animals. In the ancient world, whether we look at Egypt or India or Mesopotamia or Persia, we see these menageries forming uh, really the world over. Uh, Emperor Wu Di displayed elephants and giant pandas, and Egyptian Queen Hatshepsut uh, displayed rhinoceroses and giraffes. Uh, Montezuma in Mexico displayed jaguars and eagles and snakes. And really, when we look at these displays, what these rulers are really displaying is the ability to conquer their enemies, conquer nature, to command geography. And we see a transition eventually from these ancient form of menagerie to what we would consider a modern zoo in the late 18th and early 19th century. Kingdoms are replaced by nation states. We see private funded menageries being replaced by public funded zoos. As this transition happens, Though power and wealth still remains at the center of zoological parks, these modern zoos, in comparison to the ancient form of menageries, display something new. And these new zoos are also interested in in knowledge, and they're interested in education. They're interested in entertainment and science, and displaying power as well. Tracy, anything to add? Yeah, just to add, imperialism plays a massive role when countries are moving into territories and then basically this kind of imperial drive to collect the animals that are there and just animals being used from the beginning of time for for diplomacy, basically as gifts from one power to another. And a kind of very recent local example as well is the concept of panda diplomacy and the 
basically rental of pandas from China and what that means in sort of broader diplomatic sense is a really interesting story as well. So when exactly did zoos start trying to make the enclosures more natural? Because I think when we think of some of these older forms of zoos, we think of kind of the concrete cages and steel bars. When did they try to make them look more like the natural habitat of these animals? So I would say that as far as naturalistic enclosures or enclosures that are seemingly naturalistic, um, this was a long process. I would say that it begins really intensively at the end of the 19th century. In the 1880s and 1890s, these modern zoos uh, began to make enclosures look more naturalistic in comparison to the cages that define menageries most of zoo history. In the 1890s, a famous German and Hamburg zoo owner, Carl Hagenbeck, is a major figure in prompting the shift to naturalistic enclosures. Uh, he designed what was what he called the panorama or the panorama exhibit. In panoramas, animals from the same ecosystem in the wild were displayed together in one single enclosure. To make it look realistic or naturalistic, they were displayed uh, with the appropriate plants, um, with painted backdrops that would look like the backdrops you would find in the wild um, with fake rocks. The goal of Panorama was to model a, a quote-unquote real landscape. And German zoo owner Hagenbeck popularizes this in the 1890s and really sets uh, the bar high for uh, modeling enclosures after um, real landscapes. Now, of course, um, one of his famous panoramas displayed seals and walruses, reindeer, and polar bears in a single habitat. However, they were never actually in a single enclosure. What the panorama used was moats to separate seals from the walruses, from the reindeer, to, and from the polar bears, so that they would appear as if they were in a single habitat, but in fact they were separated by these barriers. The real uh, importance of the panorama is to trick the viewer or the zoogoer into thinking they're looking into a real environment. Yeah, the, what's interesting, uh, I agree with Dan that Hagenbeck is often pointed to as the central figure in, in this transition where he imagines this idea of more natural enclosures and implements it in the zoo that he constructs in Hamburg in 1907. What's interesting, too, is that there were those who still defended the Victorian model. So William Hornaday at uh, what the New York Zoological Park, now the Bronx Zoo, he and Hagenbeck were in a very um, close correspondence and a very, very prolific correspondence for many years. And Hagenbeck was always telling Hornaday to come and see this new, this new zoo and these new enclosures. And Hornaday very much felt that the zoo was for zoo-goers, were for people, and that Hagenbeck's enclosures allowed animals to get away and to potentially hide, whereas the Victorian model with small cages allowed the zoo-goer to see the animals and always have access to them. So there was those differences there. Also, uh, some places, Toronto, for example, is very, very late to transition from the Victorian model to the more natural large enclosure model. The Toronto Zoo doesn't open until 1974, and a Victorian zoo operates in Riverdale until 1974 with increasing complaints from the public about those conditions and about the fact that they felt that the animal enclosures were too small for the animals there. So that's an interesting local history for us. Also, just to add to this idea that Dan suggested that naturalistic enclosures aren't always what they seem. He talks about the moats that separate particular animals. There are also cases where foliage, for example, is electrified to stop animals from rooting it up because it's so expensive to keep replacing. And this kind of constant struggle between animals' kind of natural instincts and 
they attempt to keep them in enclosures that sometimes have to basically obstruct those instincts. Yeah, both modern zoos and the history to naturalistic-looking enclosures is quite complex. While Hagenbach and the panoramas are often held up as the quintessential example of a naturalistic enclosure, most naturalistic enclosures were far more simple than these elaborate, unified exhibits with multiple species. Uh, most naturalistic enclosures in the 1890s and the first decade of the 20th century were simply larger enclosures made to look like fields or forests or oceanscapes for uh, for seals. So uh, most naturalistic enclosures, I just wanted to make clear, are, are more simple than Hagenbeck's large and grand and very expensive panoramas. Absolutely. To add to that as well, it's very much contingent on what resources the zoo has access to. And a lot of times I think that, that the transition or the attempt to transition to a model like Hagenbeck's is much more of a nod to his model than anything that approximates what he was able to do with the resources he had at his disposal. Yeah, often the first zoos, 1793 is often seen as the year that the first modern zoo is born. Um, when the Menagerie outside of Paris, the Hardin Royal de Plantes, was transitioned from the royal ownership to public ownership. However, this transition is possible because it is a zoo with a lot of capital. Zoos in London and Dublin and Philadelphia and Melbourne and Antwerp, these become the first zoos because they have the most assets at the time. So this transition from Menagerie to modern zoo is a long one, and it is, as Tracy mentioned, largely due to what these zoos actually have. And a lot of zoos aren't able to make that transition. In addition, a lot of zoos in, in developing nations, uh, zoos in big cities, uh, Russia is a good example, aren't able to make that transition because they remain in a small urban space. And that's part of the problem as well. So have the changes in the mission of zoos echoed broader changes in the relationship between humans and other animals? Are these signs of that change? I would say that uh, it does mirror changes in, or at least some changes in the relationship between humans and other animals, that the, the modern zoo, especially at the end of the 19th century, as they began to model naturalistic-looking environments, um, this moment is happening at the exact same time that the Western world especially in Western Europe and the United States, is concerned with environmentalism and ecology. These conservation movements of the late 19th century occur at the same moment that these zoos are starting to transform their enclosures, and, and this, these two histories go hand in hand with each other. Tracy, anything to add? There are early reactions to the zoo where people are saying that, you know, just incarceration or putting animals in zoos is cruel. Like right from the very beginning early, you know, of the modern zoo, it has its critics. And I'm not convinced that the move to the more naturalistic enclosure changes the view of zoo-goers very much. I think it pacifies the criticism, the kind of surface criticism, where people are like, oh, that's a big tiger in a small cage. You know, and I would feel better about that tiger if it had more space. But really, the more space is not enough space for those animals, by and large. And also, I think, does it change the viewgoers' attitudes if we look at the Harambe case that you mentioned at the beginning? I think people have a really kind of a gift store attitude toward the animals, in a way. That's not good. That there's little difference between the stuffed gorilla that you can buy at the gift shop and the gorilla 
in an enclosure that your child falls into until you see that child next to that animal. And so I feel that the transition is not as large as one might think on first approaching the issue in terms of how people look at animals. Absolutely. I I was just going to add to that, Tracy, that these changes in zoos I don't think are as intertwined with changes in human-animal relationships as it is entwined with the shifting in human desire that going to the zoo for a human zoo-goer is about the desire of that zoo-goer to see the wild. And part of this desire is wrapped up in the old, ancient issues of uh, feeling powerful. To stroll through a zoo, you can feel the, the power of strolling through the world in miniatures, as one scholar puts it. But also, uh, this desire is also about escape, escaping industrialization, escaping the crowdedness of cities, escaping the, the reality that there's actually very, very little wild spaces left at the end of the 19th century. With that being said, though, I think the, the relationship between humans and animals are impacting the zoo very little. I mean, the, the zoological park, even as it's undergoing its transition and its enclosures, is about human desire, not so much about the relationship between the actual relationship between humans and animals. I actually have a kind of funny anecdote both Dan and I have done research in the archives, the Wildlife Conservancy archives in the Bronx Zoo, and kind of indicative uh, vignettes where a young boy was maybe eight years old, was walking along, and a squirrel ran across his path, and he jumped like three feet in the air. Uh, and it just was very clear that these were very urban children. And another child, still in a pushchair, maybe three or four, was visibly panicked and asking where the people were. And uh, I just thought it was really... <laughs> fits nicely with Dan's uh, example of why go to a zoo, right? And what it means to escape a kind of urban, tight, urban, dense urban environment. That's a great anecdote. Thank you. Tracy, you've looked at zoos in the Soviet Union. How is the history of zoos in other parts of the world similar or different from those in the U.S.? That's a really interesting question. And I think in many ways, the Russian tradition is not dissimilar to the U.S. One of the big problems both for Russia and for the Soviet Union was a lack of resources. And that really did limit the way that the zoos developed. So the trajectory is quite similar in the sense that the Moscow Zoo is the first zoo to be established. It's established in 1864. It also is built on the back of menageries that pre-existed it. So its animal collection largely comes from menageries in and around Moscow and then from animals that are that are given to the zoo. For example, the uh, zoo is initially established by a uh, society for the acclimatization of animals. And the problem up until the revolution in 1917 is that the zoo goes back and forth. The, the acclimatization society runs out of funds, and the zoo is sold to a, private, to a private owner. And then there's all of this criticism that the private owner is running it into the ground and has concerts, and the animals are not being fed, and they're completely traumatized, and it's open late at night, and it becomes this kind of, you know, and this is the mythology. It's hard to sort out what was really going on, but that the zoo becomes this kind of dangerous, unhealthy, degenerate zone. And then it's taken over again by the society with assistance from the imperial regime, from the the czarist regime. And that happens, that back and forth happens a couple of times. 
And again, it's problematic. There's no running water. Heating is an issue. One of the members of the acclimatization society has a kangaroo living in his apartment for months and months and months because they're afraid to put it in the zoo, that something's going to happen to it. And then the revolutions in 1905 and the revolutions in 1917, because the Moscow Zoo is such an urban zoo, there was really heavy fighting in both cases on the grounds of the zoo which destroyed a lot of the territory, animals were killed. And then in the Civil War period from 1918 to 1921, there was mass starvation. The zoos, they couldn't keep them, they couldn't feed them, and it was just completely chaotic. And there's an attempt in the 1920s, the Bolshevik state starts to invest in the zoo as well. And I've looked at this really interesting attempt by people who work within the zoo to lobby for state resources and their arguments as to why the zoo is an important educational uh, institution and an important institution for any world-class city which appeals to the Bolsheviks in terms of how they want to project the country to the rest of the world. So it's a really, really interesting history and trajectory. The history of the Leningrad and Moscow zoos in World War II is particularly uh, interesting as well because it's an incredible crisis moment and how do they keep these animals alive? In the siege of Leningrad, uh, zookeepers managed to keep a hippopotamus alive when more than a million Leningraders starve and they're Mm -hmm. keeping a hippopotamus alive. So we've already referenced a little bit about this perception of the cruelty of zoos. And there is a popular debate about the benefits versus their cruelty um, as places that, especially today, are believed to kind of educate people about nature and the environment versus a place where animals are caged and dislocated. So how have zoos historically fit into conversations about animal welfare, either positively or negatively? Well, that's a really interesting question, Brenna. Um, Like so much of history, zoological parks are also and often contradictory places. I would say from my own research that I see zoos falling uh, in this spectrum. Um, On the one side, uh, zoological parks have been, and in some ways still are, institutions of of torture or can characterize as such. But on the other end of the spectrum, zoos have been and still are institutions of welfare and in uh, many cases, uh, animal rights. I guess to kind of tackle this question, um, there's a mixed legacy in the history of zoos with the issue of education. Several scholars have uh, shown in the present and in the recent past, in the last 25 years, that uh, zoos do very little education work, uh, meaning that most people that go to zoos learn very little. And in fact, there's some evidence to show that most people that go to zoos actually learn less about the natural world than people who don't go to zoos at all. So this is one side of of this legacy in education. On the other side, though, uh, for the last 200 years, zoos have been magnets for scientists and naturalists, ethologists and ecologists and veterinary doctors, as well as zookeepers themselves, who not only in many cases stand as symbols of of, welfare for animals, but also um, push human knowledge in thinking about animals in new directions. So for humans, zoos, and for these humans, zoos are often places where empathy and welfare are born, where science is dealing with animal behaviors are advanced. On the flip side, to look at the issue of welfare, um, I think for the animals, there's also a mixed legacy. Well, I mean, first of all, it's difficult to truly be able to say what an individual animal's experience is or was in the past. So that's kind of the first issue. But I think in the biggest picture, for a hold, while holding animals captive, while limiting their freedom, while preventing them to be themselves in the wild, 
combined with a long history of inadequate cages, especially uh, before zoos make a transition to larger enclosures, it's clear that for the animals, welfare is, is not possible. Today, though, issues are more complicated. Zoos in the 20th century have inherited you know, new practices, uh, like rescuing animals injured in the wild um, or rescuing animals from ecosystems that have vanished. Also, zoos are, or some zoos are employed with reintroducing animals into the wild. In general, uh, some of these issues are about the very welfare of the animals that are in the zoos, and the legacy for animals themselves becomes uh, more complex. I also think it's important to know that since World War II, the majority of zoo animals are animals born in the zoo, and most of these animals you know, grandparents or great-grandparents, you know, several lines have been born within zoos. So there's a movement now to think of zoo animals not so much as wild animals held in captivity, but a new sort of animal, maybe a, a public pet of sort. It's hard to hold, you know, a zoo lion to the metric of a wild lion today when that lion has been bred in a zoo for the last 60 years. So I, I'm just saying all this because it really makes this kind of legacy much more flex. What do you think, Tracy? I think... To kind of work backwards uh, in time, you sort of work, work forwards in time uh, chronologically, and and I agree that zoos, it's possible perhaps to reconfigure them as places that can, as you pointed out, rehabilitate animals that have been injured in the wild, to um, take in animals that can't go back into the wild. You talk about the issue of animals that have been born into zoos, generations of animals born into zoos. Uh, and this idea of a kind of, did you call it a zoo pet? I used the word pet, so I yeah, realized it's yeah. a kind of category-pushing word. No, exactly, and that's what I wanted to sort of talk about as well. That very concept introduces a problematic, right? Like, what does it mean that we have bred these animals so that they become a pet of sorts? They're very, very used to humans. A lot of them have been hand-reared. And that sort of brings me to an example that occurred at the end of February in El Salvador, which really, really bothered me. It played on my mind to try and figure out why something like this would happen. So people broke into a zoo in El Salvador and beat to death the hippopotamus, Gustavito, who was this very much a zoo pet. Social media just went crazy. People were mourning. They left flowers for him. Why was this animal attacked in this way? What does this mean? What is this symbol? Why this violence directed at this animal? And thinking about the fact that in the wild, uh, it would be very difficult to approach a hippo and start beating it with boards. But this animal was used to people, right? And these people who wanted to do it harm, it was relatively easy for them to approach the animal and it took him a long time to die. It was a really brutal event. And I think it's an event that we need to think about in terms of what animals and violence, what violent acts against animals mean and symbolize. So that is one issue. There was a Swiss biologist who was writing in, in major publications in the 60s, I think, about zoos, uh, Heidegger, and uh, in really interesting books on zoo biology. And his argument at the time was like, if you don't have the resources to have a zoo that can adequately house and feed animals, you shouldn't have a zoo. And Dale Jameson, who has written on, on zoos, argues that if we're going to put animals in cages, that we owe them everything. And it's very, very difficult to give them everything is the problem. And Heidegger also, uh, one of the things that struck me in his work is he said that zoos attract sadists like magnets. 
and there is a lot of violence against animals from zoo goers. Uh, monkeys are given lit cigarettes. They are constantly taunted and tormented. And this is sort of a problem that zoos are constantly addressing and factor into their budgets, which is the loss of animals at the hands of zoo goers. So I think there's, a, there's always a dark underbelly to the zoo, and it's something that recently has maybe been coming out more. I'm not sure. Well, I think that's a perfect transition to our next question. Perhaps to hide some of the negatives you have been speaking about, zoos today seem to be conveying the message that it's important to conserve animal habitats in the wild and to save animals and increasingly present themselves as sort of arcs that try to preserve species from extinction. When did the shift to zoos as arcs begin, and is it because of some of these negatives that you've been talking about? How did we go from menageries to arcs so quickly? Has the zoo industry ever had the opposite effect? Well, it's a good question. I suppose thinking of zoos as arcs, um, if we would think of the ark literally, or at least literally from a biblical standpoint of, of Noah, the story of Noah, I mean taken from Mesopotamian lore, of course, but um, if Noah collected the animals on the ark to protect them from their annihilation during the Great Flood, if we take this literally on for zoos as a place where animals will be saved from extinction, um, I think this mission was formed in the late 19th century, specifically in the United States. And though the history of zoos is a global story in many ways, the United States really furthers or invents this mission of saving animals from extinction. American zoos in the late 19th century, from the late 1880s, uh, really until 1910, really creates a mission to save the animals of North America. The United States, a young nation in comparison to European nations, wanted to create institutions that could match Europe. And they wanted to create a nation that could be compared to the great nations of Europe. Yet they were concerned that many of the symbols of North America, animal symbols, animals like elk and beavers, uh, were disappearing and would be gone uh, very soon. So the zoos sought to serve at, on an arc of sorts uh, these animals. Um, American zoos were specifically concerned with beaver and elk, uh, bison, moose, condors, passenger pigeons, black-tailed deer, uh, caribou, antelope, mountain sheep, manatees, mountain goats, grizzly bears, uh, elephant seals. Uh, these are animals found in North America that aren't found anywhere else in the world, and, and it became a mission of American zoos to preserve them. For the follow-up of that question, I, I would say that I don't know if zoos themselves furthered extinction, but there are many cases that they, I guess, contributed to the cultural processes that led to it. And when I uh, say that, I mean that in many times the search to catch the animals that were disappearing from the wild, the very process of catching these animals ended up creating more casualties than if they didn't try to catch them in the first place. I've done a lot of uh, research about mountain sheep, for, for example, and zoos really wanted mountain sheep. It was quite difficult to catch them because they would be, only be found on the highest you know, peaks in the United States. Often when a zoo would go out to catch a mountain sheep, it would take several years. Oftentimes, more mountain sheep were injured or killed in the process than could have ever been imagined at the beginning. So in this way, zoos, I think, were part of the process of annihilation. I wouldn't say that zoos specifically caused it um, because their, you know, near extinctions or their endangerment uh, occurred before um, the rise of zoos themselves. Tracy, anything to add? 
Yeah, I, th- I think it's it's a really interesting question, and as Dan suggested, a very, very complex question with many sort of elements that are working together. In the research that, that I've been looking at, again, a lot of it rooted in that early 20th century correspondence, William Hornaday's correspondence. There's this sense in the preservation of American wildlife that Dan detailed. There's this interesting discussion about the right kind of hunting and the wrong kind of hunting. And there's kind of an interesting motivation for preservation has to do with the right kind of hunting. A lot of these individuals were hunters, and they wanted to preserve these animals so they can continue to hunt them. So there's an interesting tension there. Uh, And another interesting tension I forgot to mention between the Russian and American zoos, and Dan and I had talked about this the other day, is that the Russian zoos are heavily invested in adapting wild animals to domestic life. So Russian zoos are working on domesticating sable for the fur industry, domesticating foxes for the fur industry. And there is no apology for that connection in the Russian context, which um, when I talked to Dan, he didn't see in the American context. So that's a kind of interesting element there. In terms of extinction, also really interesting in... I've been working a lot on an individual who was hired to trap gorillas for the Bronx Zoo in 1912, 1911-1912. And he's constantly ranting against the way that locals uh, in the French Congo are capturing animals with no sort of self-reflection that it's the demand from the West for these animals that is creating these brutal situations where families are attacked, adults are killed, and the babies are taken away. So the ways of trapping animals, particularly in the early period, is very, very, um, has a very brutal side to it as well. And I do think that this is a spin that zoos have adopted to try and defend themselves in many ways and to motivate their continued existence. And in some ways it might be sincere, in other ways less so. And also there's an element here too with this attempting to bring back extinct species. And what does that mean? And what does that mean for the existing animals that are going to be basically incubators for these new species and experiments that are going to be conducted on existing animals uh, in order to bring back a woolly mammoth who's going to gestate a woolly mammoth, an elephant, (laughs) right? So there's a, another side to this as well. What does it mean to try and bring back the white rhino? What, how are we going to do that, and how many animals are going to suffer in that process that we don't care about? So that's, I think, what I would add there. Yeah, I would just say that um, the the role of the zoo as an arc is actually more relevant and more spoken about now than ever before, um, simply because the rate of, of extinction and endangerment has gone up drastically since World War One. So while this was a mission of the early zoos, I think, you know, in today's popular culture, the, this idea of the zoo as an arc is, you know, more and more relevant in many ways just because we're endangering so many species at such a higher rate than ever before. Uh, Dan and I recently uh, hosted a workshop in December on zoos and zoo studies. We called it Zoo Studies Toward a New Humanities. And one of our participants who's an anthropologist at York, Catherine Dunning, asked the question that deals with some of this bringing species back, is there worse outcomes than extinction, than disappearance? for some species, and that was kind of an interesting, provocative question uh, along these same lines.
What was the consensus to that question? There was none. Okay. There was. <laughs> That's not surprising. It was a very uh, interesting discussion. It's such a, an interesting, unique question, right? Like, hmm, because our natural assumption is extinction is the worst thing, right? But what does preservation mean and what does bringing species back really entail? Right. And when you start to look at it, one's view becomes much more complicated. Yeah, it's interesting sort of to think just rhetorical questions. You know, what good does it do to preserve a species that evolved in nature by keeping the species in living museums? Uh, what good does it do for the species? What good does it do for the humans keeping them? And who would we be doing this for? You know, several species that went extinct in the early 19th century, like the Hokkaido wolf or the Atlas bear. There's an elephant bird, a Tahiti sandpiper. I mean, there's maybe 40, 50 different species that went extinct, you know, before 1850. It's interesting to think, you know, what would our situation in the world be if we had kept these alive in zoos? What would this, you know, why would we do so? What would it add to the world that you know, we wouldn't have without them. It's just an interesting thought because this uh, this issue of keeping these animals around is actually more possible today than ever, but some of those larger moral questions are just interesting to think about. Mm -hmm. So have there ever been any instances that flip the script on zoos and put people on display? Yes, I think this is important. Um, I, I would, first of all, you know, the script actually isn't being flipped in these situations. Um, so uh, the short answer is yes, humans are, have been uh, displayed in zoos many, many, many times. But the script, though, is an alter. Human zoos kept the same script as animal zoos, but in the place of the animal were humans. Humans were put in zoos as if they were animals. In the 1870s through the 1890s, human zoos and human exhibitions were quite popular, especially in Europe, but also in the United States. And these exhibitions and these human zoos uh, embody and represent just racism at, at its worst. The displaying of naked, uh, usually dark bodies as objects to be gawked at, as symbols of conquered wild nature, as signifiers of empire. Whether the humans were Nubians or Samoans or Eskimos or American Indians, these situations are just you know, racism at its worst. They're humans put on display for the delights of white, middle, and upper classes uh, throughout the global West. The most famous case in the United States is the case of Otabenga. Um, in 1906, the, the Bronx Zoo in New York City uh, displayed a Congolese pygmy man, Otabenga, in display uh, with uh, chimpanzees, uh, with an orangutan, uh, with a parrot, with a sign also that says the missing link, uh, suggesting that in evolutionary terms, um, at least that Otabenga was you know, closer to being an animal than Europeans were. So displays like these were quite common. Um, the Cincinnati Zoo um, and other places throughout the United States also displayed American Indians, the Sioux specifically. So you know, humans have been exploited in zoos frequently in the past. Um, and I think this is interesting in many ways as an important story for the history of marginalization and racism and ethnic strife, things like this. But it's also interesting because it uh, what, what does this uh, say about the structure of zoos themselves? Uh, in order to otherize other humans, we put them in a zoo. But what, what does this say about the space of the zoo um, in particular? Yeah, I think the points that Dan has made are, are absolutely right on. There is this tradition of exhibiting humans in zoos. Otobenga, for example, was already part of the 
human exhibits at the St. Louis World Fair in 1904. Uh, there were thousands of people exhibited at that World Fair. <clears throat> 2,000 Native Americans were exhibited. Over 1,000 people from the Philippines were exhibited in a 47-acre enclosure meant to recreate villages. <laughs> Nine indigenous men and women from Japan were exhibited. Otobenga was one of 12 men from Congo who was on exhibit in St. Louis, and there was all manner of misinformation that was connected to these men. Moreover, these they were young men. They had brought with them parrots and chimpanzees, and people who were at the exhibit were burning these animals with cigars, were taunting these young men, and as it got colder because they were there for months, people in attendance would complain if they covered their native dress so that they wanted these young men to still be in loincloths in very cold weather and they were borrowing blankets from the Native Americans in the next exhibit over and this was just this incredibly bizarre scene that wasn't really that long ago. This was 1904 in the United States and there's a long legacy of people actually asking for compensation to family members who they felt had been exploited in these exhibits. So it's a, it's a very interesting and not that ancient history. In fact, Otobenga's story ends on a tragic note. He doesn't spend that long in the Bronx Zoo because it causes this huge controversy where uh, Baptist preachers in particular, Baptist ministers, come in and say, you can't do this. And it becomes quite the scandal. And he's released but he can never really afford to raise the money to get back home, and he commits suicide in 1916. So that's a very interesting story. Thank you. Any last thoughts? There's a wonderful novel that came out in 1924 by David Garnett, who was uh, in the Bloomsbury group. It's called Man in the Zoo, and uh, it's he puts himself into an exhibit, and uh, it's a quite wonderful reflection on what it would mean to have a human on exhibit uh, in the zoo in a different kind of condition where he himself has opted for this. I would just say that zoos are um, really complex and interesting places to think with. Um, you know, over 600 million people a year visit a zoo, so they're you know, significant institutions in you know, human society, and throughout time, there's been millions of animals and, and millions and millions of human beings that find themselves in, in these um, unusual spaces. So um, the history of zoos is really complex. Um, every zoo has its own history that's, that's unique and, and significant. But, the, you know, the zoo provides a window into all sorts of historical and scientific, ethical and philosophical questions. Well, we'll wrap it up on that note. Thank you to Daniel Vandersummers, a postdoctoral fellow in animal history at McMaster University in Ontario, and Dr. Tracy McDonald, a professor of Russian and Soviet history, also at McMaster University. For more on this topic, check out Dan Vandersummers' feature article for Origins, What's All Happening at the Zoo. Thanks, everyone. This episode of History Talk Podcast was brought to you by Origins, Current Events in Historical Perspective an online publication of the Public History Initiative and the Goldberg Center and the History Department at The Ohio State University in Columbus and Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. Our main editors are Stephen Kahn and Nicholas Breivogel. Our executive producer is David Stately. Our audio and technical advisor is Paul Kotheimer. Our audio producers and hosts are Brenna Miller and Jessica Lissett. Song and band information can be found on our website. 
You can find our podcasts and more on our website, origins.osu.edu, on iTunes and on SoundCloud. And as always, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks for listening.